It's a quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great harm and suffering as an untrained mind. Similarly, I do not perceive even one thing that leads to such great benefit and happiness as a cultivated mind. In this retreat, we've been having the opportunity to cultivate this mind, this body, mind, heart, to cultivate and inform and illuminate our practice through the teachings and through these ways of contemplating that have been handed down over centuries. It feels like a great gift. In particular, at this stage of the retreat, building on what's gone before, we've been looking at this balance. Kirisaro talked last night, Ajahn Chah's image of samatha vipassana, the calming and the insight of the candle. It's a samatha, like building a candle, but no good just having a candle if you can't light it. The lighting of the candle, illuminating so we can see, is an analogy for the, the steadiness, the ground of samadhi, samatha, calming, gathering, and the lighting of wisdom, the light of wisdom, the light of investigation. If you just have a, a match trying to light, but you don't have anything holding and steadying, then we don't really get to see very much. Mine's just flickering, moving here, there, and there's no steady contemplation and reflection. Sometimes this samatha vipassana, sometimes samadhi, dhamma vijaya, these are different ways of talking about this balance. The two oxen that were also mentioned last night, pulling the plow, plowing the field of cultivation. The samadhi, if you break down that word, it has this sense of sang, is like um, holding, um, or actually sung is more like together, sorry. Ah is like a movement, the middle of the word, like moving towards, and the di, the samadhi, like dharani, which is an ancient word for mantra, means to hold. So it's like the moving, moving towards a holding of togetherness, <laughs> sort of, you know, allowing the pieces of ourself that are disparate and disconnected through the activity of presence to regather body, mind, heart. Sometimes called sati, mindfulness with sampajanya. So mindfulness doesn't stand alone. It's married always with sampajanya, this contemplative, investigative. Samadhi, dhamma, vijaya, looking into the nature of things, thingness, dhammas, of manifestation, unmoving and the moving. So this training is so much around talk that that was given the other day as well about this middle pillar of, of gathering and working with the three streams of energy that we have, mind, stream of the mind, the mental factors, stream of the jitta, the heart, felt sense, what is affecting, coloring the heart, and the kaya sankara, the stream of the body. The body working with the anapana, the mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of sensation, steadying around the physicality, calming, soothing. With the jitta, this heart that's, that's so affected, by the internal arising and the external impingement. And, you know, that's what the, the primary experience of the sense of self, the, the I am feeling this, affected by this, the I amness, if you like, that is, that is so shaped to be able to soothe and calm and uplift through this metta and kindness and the positive qualities through the practice of focusing, this sometimes called pitti sukha, ease and happiness born of the samadhi and samatha practice, the calming and studying practices. 
And then this mental, the, the mental stream, training the mental stream to come back, you know, to bring attention using the vitaka, this directing mental stream through attention, bringing, using words like, how is it now? Which is perhaps better than going, get back. How is it now is a softening, opening inquiry. How was present for me now? So this is a gentle and kind way of inviting and training mind to come back, attention to receive, however it is now. So these are like the spheres within which we're training, this undertaking, this training, this gathering, training the the flow of the karma that that is just driven by habits and reactivity, training to pause and change from reactivity, that rain that Dawn was talking about very beautifully, to reflect, to take space, and to have choice then to respond, to be able to move from the unwholesome and direct mind to the, the wholesome, so these these are all there's so many different parts of this ongoing opportunity we have in every moment that we're present and awake and of course there's so many moments when we're just in the flood of our habits but in those precious moments the magic moment I think this term was used when we can re- recalibrate through a different relationship to how it is now as Ajahn Chah said, know and watch your heart, your jitta. It is pure. But emotions, mind states, feelings come to color it. So let your mind be like a to- tightly woven net to catch emotions and feelings that come and investigate them before you react. That is like probably one of the most helpful pieces of advice on the planet right now. <laughs> There's such a massive reactivity going on, you know, we're looking at that and it's so out of control and just people's minds and emotions and patterns just running wild. Investigate. That investigative, this is such a key, this is the key element really of liberation, being able to really investigate what do you, what is your car linked to? What are you being dragged along by? What energies We have this chance to pause, to mindfully take a step back and consider. Not always easy to do because there is so much momentum that we're working with. But this is, you know, why we're doing these containers to help, you know, the the, the image of the template. It's uh, Guru talking about the hindrances in the limitation. Kirisar was talking about being in the temple so we can contemplate these hindrances rather than being born into them and becoming them and living through the consequences of them. So this calming and steadying and then being able to turn that steady mind, it doesn't have to be like a very deep, jhanic, highly concentrated state. Ajahn Chah said you just need as much concentration as you would need to read a book to contemplate the nature of things. So that's not a high bar. It's something that we can actually do, (laughs) which is nice. You know, we don't have to sit for hours unmoving on a mountaintop. We can be in the supermarket and turn the mind to contemplate the reactivity and and the responses we're experiencing. And then that's then that mind can then investigate the Dhamma. There's a beautiful story that I, I really like very much about a character that was called post his moment his moment of awakening. He's called Super Buddha. It's the time of the at the time of the Buddha, and this character was a leper and an outcast. So he saw a great gathering around the Buddha, and he kind of came up and he thought, well, maybe there's some food on offer. So that was his intention, was like, maybe there's a free meal here. I mean, whatever draws you in, you know, it's like. <laughs> and he was, he saw, you know, and then he sort of kind of saw, well, maybe I can sit down and listen to the Dhamma. 
So this, this character sat down and listened to the Dharma. And at the same time, the Buddha was scanning the, the, the disciples, those that were listening, to see whose mind, who was ripe to really hear his essential teaching. And he realized it was this person, Super Buddha the leper, it was him. And so he gave a teaching directed at him. And this, this often happened in the suttas wasn't necessarily always talking, obviously talking to everybody, but sometimes really directing a teaching in a particular way. And so he graduated the teaching. This is the way the Buddha encouraged to speak to us, to, for us to teach when we're teaching step by step by step. Teaching first on wholesome karma, the cultivation of the wholesome. He gave a teaching on then on the danger of sensual desire that we were listening to around the hindrances, the advantages of a renunciation. And then when he saw that Super Buddha's mind was malleable, unhindered, uplifted, open, then he gave the teaching, as is sometimes said in the sutta, peculiar to the Buddhas that are awakened by themselves, that, that arise at awakening and then come to this dispensation, this medicine of offering this core teaching, the first teaching that the Buddha gave, turning the Dhamma wheel after his enlightenment, the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And in particular, Super Buddha really awakened through that and understood, as Kondanya did after the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, and in that moment after listening to that teaching, Kondanya, one of the first five disciples who became known as Anya Kondanya, Kondanya the one that knows that he, what did he know? He knew, knew through listening to this teaching that all that arises passes. And it sounds like, hmm? <laughs> but he really saw it. And in that seeing it said, the Dharma eye opened as it did for Super Buddha, seeing all that arises passes is the Dharma eye opens to see that which is changeless, to see the changeless, to know this directly, immediately. This is what's called entering the stream of the Dhamma, which is a, you know, a very shift of orientation. One that enters the stream of the Dhamma becomes freer, not completely free from the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion, but freer to know the path, may drift from the path, freer from renounces, envy, and domineering, and hypocrisy, is aligned with the ethical training, cannot commit fraud, cannot lie, really, or if goes off the path, re recalibrates more quickly. So this is uh, the, the, one of the immediate fruits. And this teaching, this core teaching of the four truths, which I'd like to, to um, share. I know many of you have heard this, and I spent 12 years in a monastery listening to it perhaps every day. <laughs> and practicing it was one of the core transmissions because it's endlessly profound. And the Buddha recommended that this teaching, that we all have a working relationship with it. In fact, he said, if someone, I can't remember the exact analogy, but if someone offers to sort of comes and said, I'm going to beat you for a hundred years, and, you, and, and at the end of that, you will receive this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, then he said, the Buddha said, that his advice would be to actually accept that beating. <laughs> <laughs> That's how high he considered this this teaching, how important and how essential, because it is a teaching that empowers us to internally release the mind from suffering. It doesn't mean to say release from pain, but to release from the, the suffering that's created through the reactivity of mind. So there's four four truths that were within the template of the what would have been familiar at that time of the Ayurvedic way of healing to name a sim the symptom of what we're suffering, to look at the cause, to look at the cure, and then to prescribe the remedy. 
So the first truth, this, the symptom is this experience of what the Buddha called dukkha. And it has usually translated in English as suffering, and that's a good translation. It can be very subtle, uh, just that sense of dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness that propels us onward ever, looking for that perfect whatever, that agitation of the mind and heart. Dukkha can be that feeling of just heaviness, that which is hard to bear. Can't even quite define why this dukkha. A sense of the incapable of being satisfied. Being parted from the loved, being with the unloved, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want. Uh, Just um, on the most subtle level, being in this separative state apart from the whole, feeling the sort of subtle dukkha of that. There's just many levels of this experience, but it dominates human life. It dominates the life of all beings. And we're extremely reactive around this dukkha. So the first noble truth is naming this, not saying you're suffering because you've done something terrible, or taking it so personally, it's very dispassionately stated. There is this experience of dukkha, and with each of the truths there is a practice that is prescribed by the Buddha. This dukkha needs to be understood, needs to be turned to, needs to be contemplated. So rather than the massive amount of reactivity we have around the uncomfortable, trying to distract, trying to project it's their fault or projecting inwardly it's something bad about me or, or repressing it or acting it out, all the different ways that we move around this experience. So we're building this capacity, the same quality of attention and mindfulness say we give to more neutral sensation, breath, body, grounding, to turn that attention to directly to the experience of dukkha. This is to feel, as in the second foundation of mindfulness, to feel the feeling within the feeling. When we go into the story around it, it becomes overwhelming. But actually, even in the most difficult feeling, because dukkha is connected with mental and physical and bodily emotional feeling. So at whatever level or multiple levels we feel that, actually in this moment, without the projection of the mind and then the reactivity of the mind around what is sometimes quite hard to bear, it is actually a feeling here and now and it's just this much. And we have got the capacity for the most part. Sometimes we need help, sometimes we need support, sometimes we need to divert attention in the ways that the teaching team has been talking about and the and our support help has been helping with and so on, and that we all need. But actually, in essence, we can also gather strength, build strength, so that we have more courage to just be with the feeling in the feeling and know that it just feels like this without having to even name or describe. And that at that somatic level, it's very powerful to meet dukkha. It's a sort of a surrender into a primary initiation that, that actually is a doorway, can be a doorway then, as it presents dukkha, We've been looking at the conditioned links of what brings dukkha, which is in the second noble truth. But also dukkha is a cause for liberation. It's a cause for the path activity. It's a cause for investigation, which is one of the primary mechanisms for not just being a victim to whatever is coming about in our reactivity, but to investigate, to inquire, primary cause for our liberation. So some dukkha is called dukkha dukkha. 
<laughs> some dukkhas just pain, you know, like an aging, you know, body or feeling sick or back's gone out. We're not really saying you're necessarily going to magically disappear those kinds of embodied experiences. Or sometimes it's called dukkha viparinama, the sort of feeling of, of the loss of, you know, that, that emotional feeling sometime of, of impermanence, loss. You know, those feelings that even the Buddha, when his two great disciples died, uh, he talked to it of it as if two mighty trees had fallen. You know, clearly he felt it. You know, sometimes there's this sort of image of the Buddha being this sort of cold like a statue. Like, you know, clearly he felt, when you've seen the suttas, he was very responsive and very engaged. So dukkha viparinama, but even that can be worked with. But what the Buddha's really pointing to in terms of the liberation is called a dukkha sankara. It's the dukkha that's in that first link that we've been chanting, avijja pachya sankara. It's the dukkha that comes from the ignorance of the mind, the mind not knowing the true nature of how it is now. What's unfolding now generates dukkha, primarily through the causes of dukkha, the, the nature of tanha, desire, but it's sort of even, tanha is translated as thirst, so it has this feeling of something that's, that's you know, the sensory desire, which is a whole realm, but this also has something that talks to something a bit deeper as well. Particularly the desire of, there's the desire of sensory desire, the mind always looking for some place to land in the sensory sort of scanning the sensory experience through all the sense doors thoughts in particular and emotions and so on so this is sangsara this feeling of constantly moving but then these two other roots are so profound in terms of how they shape the experience of the self Bhavadana is this feeling of someone talked about it or asked about it in one of the questions, this not being enough. So it's really the drive for becoming something. That's, I mean, each of these have a positive dynamic within them. You know, if there wasn't some wholesome drive, the Buddha wouldn't have been awakened. If there wasn't some wholesome drive, we wouldn't be sustaining the Dhamma and contemplating it. But this is like the unconscious, unquestioned, raw sense that's unilluminated, that comes from the assumption, assumptions of, the, of who we think we are, the sense of self that's not enough yet until, 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 until. And of course, we have a whole industry built on that. You know, the self-improvement industry and so on and so on. And so this is, this is clearly dukkha, <laughs> because we never ever get there. I remember when I was in, uh, you know, Kilisar and I have worked and lived in South Africa for about 25 years, quite deeply been involved in that culture. We're less so now, but I remember we used to be invited to one of his friends who was a CEO of a very powerful company there, uh, connected with the gold industry. And uh, they were at university together. So how that, that connection came about in Oxford. So we occasionally found ourselves at his um, cocktail parties with bankers and gold traders. And, you know, it, I mean, it's pretty heavy for Buddhist meditation teachers to be in such company, especially when you're asked politicians and, like, what do you do? And suddenly you just feel this chill, you know, and you just kind of, like, blanked out. But, you know, one thing about this guy, I mean, he would drink two straight bottles of wine a night just to calm down. I mean, he wouldn't get, like, out of control, but he would just soften a bit. And he was, like, <laughs> majorly defended around, you know, like, power. So, actually, I used to quite appreciate him when he was in that state because I felt like I could connect. And... I, <laughs> 
I remember sitting next to him one of these and he was, you know, and he just started, and I've been actually training as a therapist at that time. So I guess I was in that mode and he just started to sort of confess to me and he started to talk about how he had these nightmares, you know, how he's filled with dread. I mean, he'd have to go and sort of gamble millions of dollars on, on the stock market around the gold prices and sometimes lose that, you know, it was like a highly stressful and he was second in the company, just under the top guy. So anyway, so he's telling me the stress he's under and and uh, these nightmares. And in my therapeutic way, I said, well, how is that for you? <laughs> and he would say, well, no, he just has to suppress fear. To, to. He was absolutely ruthlessly honest about who he was and what he was about absolutely stunningly perceptive about everything. I mean, if that mind had been turned to the path, he would have been probably fully illuminated and floating above us right now. And he was deeply respectful, actually, of what we were about and was very generous. In fact, our little Dharma center wouldn't have been available without his support. And that's been a great center for many years for so many that have come through it, so many projects that have happened. So anyway, I was sitting there and, you know, and, and I kind of, this question formulated in my mind, it was like, what would it take for you to stop? And this, his answer was quite stunning to me. He said, when I'm successful. And he had, you know, like, you couldn't get on the worldly terms, someone more successful materially, what was, what access he had to, where he could go for his holidays, his station in life and all the rest of it but he didn't feel it he never felt it so this is because of bawadana we never feel our successes we never feel what's actually here it's still even in our meditation it translates into the superpower meditator so until you see that mechanism you'll never get there you know and then the opposite of that was when we can't stand it anymore is the whippawadana we don't want to feel we don't want to exist we want to hide under the duvet you know uh, we want to obliterate ourselves and um, so these are very deep deep patternings that the the mind the steady mind can, instead of being pulled along by these these powerful driven energies Tanha can actually contemplate them, can illuminate them, can investigate, can actually somatically feel where they are in the body, can track the mental phenomena around them, the beliefs that we have around them, the constructs of our conditioning, both socially and familiarly and so on. And to be able to do that gives freedom to choose and also begins to allow the power of those forces to, to, to be dispelled. So there'll be a time, the more working knowledge, the more that they're touched by awareness and presence, that is free, becomes more freed in our gathering practices, then the, the more that they're seen and touched with that deep knowing intelligence of awareness itself, the more transmuted those energies become, and then they can be distilled into support for for what is actually helps to necessary for fulfilling the path, for fulfilling what we're doing. But it's 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 an energy that's informed then by more wise, compassionate contemplation, and it's an energy that we can release from. So the second noble truth of Buddha to know these energies and to release from them, to relinquish them, to transform them. And in their relinquishment, which was what Kittisara was pointing to yesterday in the beautiful talk he gave last night, in Ajahn Chah's quote about the nature of the world, this is an internal work. And I remember one of the fellow nuns when I was a practitioner saying to the abbot, I've had enough of the world. And he said, well, the world is the mind. <laughs> the mind is the world. You know, we have to understand it. You know, the world hasn't had enough of us, obviously. You know, we have to, 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 you know, we're not free really. Like, 
And this sort of third noble truth is really about this releasing, relinquishment. Like one of the very first times I met Ajahn Chah, when he came to the little community that I was living in, meditator community, we were organizing retreats. And he was quite taken, I think, by this young community trying to meditate, trying to get enlightened. And he was also very amused. And I remember him sitting around our table and he was, I, was like, I was completely glued. He was like a magnet. I was like sitting right next to him, like catching every... And he just turned to me at a certain point and he was he had such energetic presence so it was like <laughs> and he went I in thai which sort of sounds a bit like you know you know what it it is what it sounds like bua bua it was like, what he meant was have you had enough and in, in the pali word is nibida it's like have you are you disenchanted enough yet with the experiences of this world how much do we need how many experiences are going to fill us? Well, surely at this point in our evolutionary cusp, we have actually must have realized perhaps we've had enough. Because <laughs> of look at where we are. What more can we consume? But this is a very, you know, like in our culture, it's like if you feel that disenchantment, that sense of weariness with it all, it's like, you know, they say in England, cheer up ducks. You know, people used to say it to me all the time when I was young. I obviously look miserable. Like, cheer up, ducky. It's like, okay. <laughs> so this, but it's like, you know, go shopping, you know, do something, you know. But in, in, in Thailand, it was actually considered a sort of mature place in your, in your Dharma practice because it starts to turn the mind in it starts to release. You start to get the benefit of what it is to release. And so the point of the teaching of Ajahn Chah last night that Kitty Sarah led us into when he gave that quote is, to let go is the way to peace. It's not saying let go of responsibility in the world, but it's saying it's actually fundam- it's a fundamental part of the practice to release into what is always already here, the underlying peaceful nature of the heart itself. This is, the, the, this is our nature. This is, na- this is peace is always here and now. Vimuttisara sabe dhamma, the line that he teaches so often that I love. Vimuttisara sabe dhamma, the essence of all dhammas, all conditions, all situations are already free. It's already peaceful. We just don't notice. We go look for it. And that very movement already, a vidya pachya sankara, we're already moving out to create a pattern, sankara, a shape that the self is beholden and shaped within. So it's more the movement of releasing, resting back, if you like, to recognize, so this third noble truth, the first noble truth is to turn to suffering, it's a practice, second, to release the causes, the third, to realize the peace already here, to realize the undying, timeless nature of awareness, conscious presence awareness itself, it's illuminating everything, without that we wouldn't even be able to know anything, to turn back into the nibbida, niroda. This is the third niroda. This means literally outside the walls of the mind, or un, outside, un, not imprisoned or unconfined, not struggling. So even though the karmic force might still be, there's still momentum. It doesn't mean to say that suddenly things disappear or stop in a puff, you know. I used to think that. I used to think that's what enlightenment was. You just sit there, you sort of tough it out, and then one day it will go, and nothing will exist anymore, and I'll be on a nibbanic cloud floating above it all. <laughs> Honest to God, that's kind of what I thought. And, you know, fortunately, I met a wise teacher (laughs) 
who made it very clear I had no idea what I was talking about. I went to, went to see him once in England. He was staying at Janchar in Akuti at this center where I used to work, uh, run by a Burmese family. And uh, I sort of took my friend and knocked on the door. And, you know, I mean, I didn't really think about monks' etiquette. You make an appointment and you sort of go and make offerings. I just was like, bang, bang, bang. And as my friend, I said, you've got to meet this master. Come along with me. And and and, the, and as the door opened, I knew immediately I'd made a mistake. It was like the lion's den. And Ajahn Chah said, okay, come in. And I sat down. And he didn't look quite the happy, jolly fellow that I'd met before. He looked really fierce. And I was like, oh, God. And he said, do you understand anatta? Because I'd done quite a few of these like heavy-duty meditation retreats, and I stupidly said, oh, yeah, 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 anatta. So I started like talking about non-self as my sense of self just got bigger and bigger. And I was getting kind of like I could feel myself burning up, and, and I couldn't stop. I didn't know how to stop, you know, like how do I, you know, and the more it was, you know, it's like, and, and he was like just like completely unimpressed. And in the end, I just petered out and looked at the floor and was like, could I just disappear down that hole? That would be great if that would just let me hide, right? And so I was just like... And he says something in Thai, and the monk that was with him the trans- refused to translate. <laughs> so then he said it again, very forcefully, and the monk said, he says you're very ignorant. <laughs> So I was like, so then he gave a talk, you know, he was non-self. So then he goes, so, you know, this beautiful, beautiful talk. So this, you know, this, this transmission of the, of this undying, it's a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Mahabur says, when dukkha stops, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It is the purity of this jitta, this very jitta, this knowing heart, that's actually fundamentally pure, unassailed. There's nothing wrong. If you want, you can call this jitta, this pure jitta. You can call it nibbana. But then he went on to say it's just a name. It doesn't have a name. Or... Things are silent before this. All words can't describe. So this realization then begets and supports. It doesn't beget because we're already already in the path, but it supports the activity of the path. Path activity doesn't stop. The Buddha still turned the wheel of the Dhamma even though he realized this path, he said, just as one faring through a forest traversed by the ancient ones of old and sees a grove with pools and beautiful trees and gardens, so have I seen this ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones. And having fully come to know this path, I have established it for the welfare of all. And so you'd say, go, go out and turn the wheel of the Dharma and support the maintenance of this path. He wasn't like, you just let go and then don't do anything. That's not the path. So it's, it is confusing because when he says, when Ajahn Chah is saying, let go of the world, is peace, that's true. That's the truth of the inner Dharma. But Ajahn Chah didn't, didn't just sit like a stone. I mean, he was running like, in the end of his life, I think 50 to 100 monasteries or so he was overseeing. I mean, that was some activity. You know, one day one of his monks was sitting in a hut and uh, the rain was pouring in and the roof wasn't fixed. And Ajahn Chah came and said, you know, what are you doing? (laughs) And he said, well, you said, let go. And he said, you know, that's, you know, stupid. You know, know, you can let go and still build your, fix your roof, you know. You can still let the the wheel of karma still moves. Things are still moving. 
but you're not grasping, you're not identifying, you're not holding on and being dragged along. There's more choice. You can pick up that wheel and engage it, which is a very different feeling than just being dragged against your wheel by the old patterns of the mind or anyone else's mind. So this actually, the root of this deep peace is, is some say it's the beginning of, the, of another level of turning of the wheel. It's the beginning of the bodhisattva path. It's the beginning of a conscious engagement with suffering. It's very different to engage suffering consciously than to unconsciously suffer and react and just be pulled down. But when one has begins to be able to have moments of really seeing through and into the core of what has caused us so much difficulty and challenge, then courage builds. And we have the courage to face challenge and realize that the challenges, however seemingly overwhelming, can be overcome. And many challenges will come because as we practice, and particularly in Master Wah, we talk about this, particularly as we start to awaken more, there's more and more forces that seek to undermine. You can see this on a planetary level. You know, there are forces that are really undermining this moment of possible shifting into a very different and new story for us as human beings that we so badly need. But then there are those forces that are very, very daunting and they look so powerful and same internally. But sometimes that power that comes in that way and, and looks like it's going to crush also is heralding, can herald, if we pick up that opportunity, a moment of tr- profound transformation. So don't fear the challenges that come. It doesn't mean something's going wrong. It can mean that actually our practice is going right. And one of the primary transmissions of Ajahn Chah when he was asked, you know, he had a phenomenal impact in Thailand, of course, but also in the West and, in, in, and still through his teachings all over the world. He was born into a rice farming family, left school at 13, was basically a, a, a farmer, really, a farming community. Didn't really put a lot of... St- emphasis on having a lot of intellectual knowledge, academic knowledge, but he was definitely the most tuned in, one of the most, probably Master Shunwa was others, and, but, you know, really that I knew more personally that had such a profound impact on anyone he met. Now this uh, this um, challenge when he was asked, you know, and he could meet, you know, like challenges so, so beautifully. Like when once when he was in London on arms round in Hampstead, these young kind of kids came up and they didn't know this is it's 1970s Buddhist monk. Oh, Kung Fu, Kung Fu. You know, they came up and they started kicking, like they didn't fortunately kick him, but they started sort of like doing these karate kicks towards him. And the worst thing you can do in, in Thailand is to, is to point your feet. You know, it's a sign of great disrespect to point your feet at someone, particularly to a revered monk. And the monks behind him on arms round were mortified, mortified. You know, and when they got back to the house, the Vihara, and they were sort of, you know, taking a chinchal's bow, they were so sorry, so sorry, these Western monks, so sorry. And he said, oh, I see you've got very good teachers here. You know, everything he would turn everything, whatever it was. And so when people asked him and recognized what an extraordinary practitioner and teacher and presence that he was, and fearless, when they asked, how did you get to be how you were? And he said, I dared to do. I dared to do. And he's, his main transmission was courage, really. You can do this. We can do this. And there's so many ways we feel we can't. I mean, you ask any one of us, like, can we give a Dharma talk? There's no way we can give a Dharma talk. 
And yet, you know, we get up and we give a Dharma talk. <laughs> because we try not to believe that mind. You know, can, can you work with this very difficult state? Don't forget that your, your nature, this invincible heart, can meet the conditions of this world and transform them. This is our magic. This is what we carry as human beings. This is our power, our superpower. It's power of the jitta. And it's radiant here. So this reclamation of the jitta, it doesn't mean to say that now we don't just have a flood coming, rain coming into through the roof of our house. We have you know, floods, fl- flooding and destroying our world, fires destroying our world, fires of greed, hatred, and delusion of the mind that the Buddha talked about all those thousands of years ago of this mind burning with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, that mind untrained, untrained mind, nothing so dangerous, unable to draw back its own projections, reacting to its own projections, you know, the mind projects and creates a story and then reacts to its own story, projects fear on the other and reacts to its own fear, nothing to do with the other. This untrained mind, look where it's brought us to, a cataclysmic point. There is, I think, no way that the Buddha wouldn't respond in these times and say, engage in any way that you can. It's, you know, that we can as practitioners, he did. He set a precedent. He didn't just sit in his hut. He did sometimes go on retreat and let go of it all. But he also tried to stop wars. He got in the middle of warring parties. He tried to resolve conflicts over water. He completely changed the religious system by taking on the caste system and... and not only undermining it, but completely undid it in his order so anyone could ordain regardless of where they had come from and not be be placed according to their caste. And gender, you know, it was very unusual and it was, there was a lot of oppositional forces to ordain women, but it still happened. And, you know, some of the true stories, hard to know, things weren't, you know, all recorded for 300 years and the versions that come out, you know, it's a a bit muddy water. But however, that he, you know, and people try to kill him for this. It wasn't like a small thing (laughs) that he did. You know, he wasn't like trying to not, you know, make any waves. He made huge waves. He made tsunamis. And he advised kings and and polit- politicians of his time and generals. He had to navigate. He was brought up in that world. So he had to navigate the politics of the time, and he did. And he tried to advise. And for me, this is this, this, this idea that we shouldn't engage politically, economically, in, in socially and culturally, in all the ways we can as activists at this moment because somehow it's not our practice, is erroneous when we look at the life of the Buddha. He didn't always succeed. He tried to stop his own people being slaughtered in a war, and he wasn't able to. But he tried. This is the issue. He tried. It doesn't mean to say we succeed. So this, this, this beautiful, you know, this beautiful, magnificent earth, this sacred web of life is calling us to respond, to engage, to take this peace, to take these gifts of the Dhamma and to bring them as the Buddha encouraged all his disciples. And when we're in the way of awakening, we're the disciples of the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the awakened ones. They encourage us for the welfare of the many folk in whatever way we can to engage the world for the sake of alleviating suffering. It's not just sit in your hut and let it all go. (laughs) Yes, do that and engage. It's the paradox, isn't it?
And it's possible because we, we are multitasking beings, it seems. And we can actually, as we become more fluid, this heart can both let go and engage. And each can inform the other until the distinctions between inner, outer, self, other dissolve. And at a deeper level, we understand all things are resident in this one awareness and we're deeply interconnected with all beings. Each breath, we're breathing together. Titnat Han, I'll finish with a beautiful teaching from Titnat Han. We need enlightenment, not just individually, but collectively to save the planet. We need to awaken out of the illusion of separateness. You carry Mother Earth within you. She is not outside of you. Mother Earth is not just your environment. It is all beings' environment. In the insight of interbeing, it is possible to have real communication with the earth. And it is this that is the highest form of prayer. I'd like to dedicate to all our ancestors, all ancestors, all beings within this shared sacred web of life from the past, the present, and the future that the forces of liberation and healing can flow through all at this time to protect, to safeguard, and to awaken. May it be so, and so it is. Om Manipame Om. So continuing on, as per usual. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.